It's good to have you all to worship together with you, to gather around God's Word and to remind each other through singing, through study, through prayer, that this is our life. This has transformed us. In our church, uh, our regular practice is just choose a book of the Bible and to work through it systematically so that God sets the agenda for our church. It just so happens this time, um, Ezra's taking us right up to Christmas. So we are at the end of Ezra, second to last sermon on Ezra, and uh, we'll be reading from chapter 10, verses 1 to 17. If you're using the Pew Bible that looks like this in the Pew Rack, it's on page 396, page 396. I also want to let you know, if you don't have a Bible at home, or if you don't have a Bible that uh, maybe you have a, a version that's hard for you to read and you find this one more readable, you can take this Bible home with you. We have a little note in the front so you don't feel guilty about it that says you're allowed to take it. So if you need a Bible, you're welcome to this. They always disappear every week. There's a few that disappear, or almost every week, and we're really glad for that. So uh, Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 to 17, and let's stand for the reading of God's Word. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Johanahan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water. He was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then, all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women. And so increase the guilt of Israel. Now then, 
Make confession to Yahweh, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan the son of Asahel and Josiah the son of Tikvah opposed this, and Meshullam and Shabbatai, the Levites, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men heads of fathers' houses according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter, and by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. You can be seated as we pray. God, We want to just pray together. We've heard your word. And together as a congregation, we want to say, we don't want to just hear it, we want to heed it. We want your Holy Spirit to be powerfully working in our midst. We submit ourselves together before what you have to say. So help us, Lord, to, to grasp it, to hear it, to heed it. We need your help to do this, Lord. That's why we're praying together. Amen. Well, when we last saw Ezra, he was lying on the floor, weeping and praying. He was facing one of those seemingly impossible situations, the kind that make you despair. I mean, put yourself in his shoes. You're Johnny come lately. You've been sent by the foreign occupying king to come and give leadership to a religious community that's been carving out its own niche for some 50 years. And the community you're coming to consists of the very first people who are willing to leave their homes and come to rebuild the ruined Jerusalem. So these were the most zealous and their children. And they'd managed to eke out a living, to rebuild the temple. They'd even established some semblance of a leadership and community structure. You think 50 years might not seem like that long of a time when you're thinking about the Bible, but think about all that's changed in Canada in 50 years. All that's changed in Georgetown in 50 years. So into that situation walks Ezra, initially full of optimism. 
I mean, God had stirred the heart of a foreign king to send him with all these treasures to join the work in Jerusalem. God had stirred the heart of many Israelites to join him in the task. And Ezra had even been able to coax some of the priests and Levites to join in this rebuilding or this, this new work. So with the word of God in hand, he reaches Jerusalem, which we saw was a miracle even in and of itself. But what does he find when he comes there? Some of the people there have married foreign wives. And that's deadly serious. Not because of the fact that they're foreign per se. We saw last week that, for example, Boaz married a Moabite girl, Ruth, but it was actually blessed by God because she had first converted to following Yahweh. The problem is deadly serious because these are idol worshipers who would inevitably lead not only those families but all of Israel into idol worship and so subvert the very purposes of God for Israel. That's why God had clearly commanded the nation of Israel not to intermarry with foreign women. Israel's original decision back in the day to disobey God in this regard had led to all sorts of terrible results culminating in the exile itself. And so now Ezra finds Israel repeating that same error like a dog returning to its vomit. And to make matters worse, the sin is disproportionately represented in the leadership. So Ezra knows he has no choice. He has to confront this sin. I don't know if there's a handbook on how to arrive uninvited as the new king-appointed ruler of an area. But if there is, I'm confident you wouldn't find any of these three chapters in it. Chapter 1, accuse the current leadership of idolatry. Chapter 2, newcomer, tell the old-timers that their way of doing things is wrong. 3, Make your first edict one that potentially rips apart families. But that's exactly what Ezra has to do. Now, Ezra's decisions and how he proceeds has the potential to end the community. There is a very high likelihood that things will become fractured beyond repair that his leadership will be so crippled and this ragtag group, ragtag group so fractured that the whole enterprise is shot. So Ezra arrived full of optimism. But already it seems it's time to do the post-mortem. This thing's dead. Let's just figure out what went wrong and bury it. Ezra's not the only one in history to have faced a situation where sin appears so entrenched that there's no hope left. Just bow down in despair and call for the postmortem. As with Ezra, it can happen at a national level. 
can happen in a church. Sin has so wrecked it that it's probably better to board up the doors and close up shop. Or it can happen in a family. Maybe you feel like it's happened in your own family. Your sin, someone else's, typically it's everybody's sin, has been so deep that the cumulative effect is things are beyond repair. The knot's too messy to undo. It can even happen on the level of someone's soul. So you look at someone you love, or someone you work with, and you can see just how deeply rooted the sin is in their lives, and things seem just too dark. Sin grips far too tightly. We live in the begun but not complete era of God's redemption plan. And in that era, it's not uncommon for us to find ourselves facing what seem like impossible odds against sin that's become deeply rooted. So where do we find this leader of the community when he's faced with such long odds? Well, we find him right where we left him in chapter 9. Look at verse 1. It says, Ezra prayed... Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. In despair, but in prayer. Remember that line. It's important, not just because it rhymes. In despair, but in prayer. That line will serve you well in your life. I find that often when we're in despair is when we're least likely to want to pray. In despair, but in prayer. But suddenly, something strange happens. As George Bailey returns to his house, sure, he's lost everything, a crowd gathers, supporting him. Well, actually, that's what happens in the Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. What happens here is a crowd of onlookers hears a solo voice singing Santa Claus is coming to town and slowly, one by one, they join the chorus until Santa's sleigh has enough power to fly. Actually, that's Elf. Should I do the miracle on 34th Street too? I believe pins and the letters being dumped from the post office. When a writer wants the momentum to change... It's not uncommon for him to move a crowd to rally around a solitary figure. And when God writes this story, he does the same. He moves a crowd of people to gather around this man. Back in chapter 9, we saw it begin because we were told all those who trembled at God's word gathered around Ezra. But here in chapter 10, you see the momentum building. Suddenly, all sorts of people are gathering around him. Men, women, even children. Ezra's despair and prayer becomes the people's prayer and despair. Verse 1 says that they wept bitterly. So first, despair and prayer. But then, others join in. 
and you sense the momentum turning, even if it's slight. Aslan is on the move. Perhaps God is going to do something in response to this prayer. And then, into the despair comes a voice of hope. But it comes from an unexpected place. One Shechaniah. Shechah who? Well, let's clarify. Son of Jehiel of the sons of Elam. Okay, that clarifies it. Actually, it doesn't. Even for biblical scholars, it doesn't. I mean, we see that the people of Elam were some of the first people who returned from exile. We saw their names in chapter 2. And it seems that Jehiel, uh, according to verse 26, was one who had taken a foreign wife. So that's significant. But other than that, he's just a guy, an average Joe, a nondescript man in the congregation. But what he says changes the whole story. Listen closely to what he says in verses 2 to 4. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Ezra's task seems impossible. Seems like there's no hope, but Shechaniah tells him, even now, there is hope. What is the basis of the hope? It doesn't explicitly say. But it's not their repentance. Because we'll see not only sequentially, but logically, the confidence and the hope precede the repentance. So you see that in verse 2 to 3. Even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. this, Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God and put away all these wives. So I think then the basis of hope must be the character of God. Some of you may remember a long time ago when we studied the book of Jonah. Jonah doesn't want to go and tell those terrible Ninevites of God's coming judgment against them because he knows something about God's character. He knows that if they repent, he'll relent because his God is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. Eventually, Jonah does go to Nineveh and he does declare the message of judgment and Nineveh repents fully from the top to the bottom. All people repent and God relents. It's the character of our God. So while Ezra's prayer from chapter 9 doesn't exactly give us a glimmer of hope, he ends saying none can stand before you because of this. Shechaniah comes along and says, the situation is not hopeless. Perhaps the odds are daunting. 
Our sins are as serious as you say. We have, he says, broken faith with our God, but even now there is hope because of who God is. And then he says, because of that, we need to repent and run to him. That's really significant. The sinner who knows God's character doesn't run from him, though he's the judge. The sinner who knows God's character runs to him because his judge is also merciful. We'll find out in the Christmas story how that all works together. Because God would send forth His Son to redeem the world. To take our punishment upon Himself. So that if we repent of our sins and run to Him, our judge can be merciful because He's meted out the judgment we deserve on Christ. That's why Christmas matters. But even here, 500 years before Christmas, Shechaniah gets it. Run to God, not from Him. There is hope, so put away your sin. And Shechaniah doesn't just speak in generalities. He gives a really specific plan. We'll make a covenant with God to put away our foreign wives. We'll do it all in a way where we're working together to make sure we're, we're following God's law well in how we do it. And you, Ezra, are going to lead it. Seeing the sequences in our story so far, despair and prayer, then others join in, and then God's mercy comes into view, and there's a decision to repent fully. Now, before I proceed in our passage, I just want to make an observation that what happens here with Ezra and Shechaniah is often how God works. It's not uncommon in the Bible that God appoints a certain man to be at the very point of the spear in a difficult work that he's doing. Some of the examples that come to mind are Moses, or remember Barak from the book of Judges, or King David, or Ezra here. Remember Moses? He didn't have the courage or strength to do this huge task that God was calling him to do. And eventually God grants him Aaron. And then Moses is able to act. Barak did not want to lead an army against impossible odds, even though God said he would be with him, until Deborah agreed to come alongside him. And then Barak was able to act. Even think of King David when, when the king Saul was bent against him. What does he do? He runs to his friend Jonathan, and the Bible tells us that Jonathan strengthened his hand in the Lord. And here, it appears Ezra is debilitated by the task before him. And it isn't until Shechaniah steps forward that Ezra is able to act. 
the church today needs men like Ezra or Moses or David. And we need people like Aaron, Deborah, and Shechaniah. There might be a reason Jesus sent his disciples two by two. I want you to tuck that away because at some point you're like, there, there might be some in this room who are going to see a leader who is in Ezra's spot. He has a huge task and he's debilitated by it. And I want you to remember that God might be calling you to be Deborah or Shechaniah. Now that doesn't mean this passage is a leadership manual. So let's just return to the sweep of the story. Ezra's in disrepair, or despair and praying. The people join him in. Shechaniah speaks, and suddenly Ezra has the hope he needs to act. Look at verse 5. He's just been told, Arise, it's your task. We're with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites in all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Ezra arises. God is on the move. There's actually hope in this story. There's hope in Ezra's heart, and so he acts. He calls the people who've gathered around him to make an oath that they will follow Shechaniah's plan. Our Christmas movie is going to have a happy ending after all. Now you probably noticed that as the story's progressed, I've been drawing out some key moments so I've said despair in prayer a few times, others joining in, hoping in God's character. I'm not doing this because they offer us a prescription. Follow these steps and your hopeless situation will somehow turn around. But even though they aren't a sort of prescription, they do offer us a model path, a good path for seeking God's grace when we are in one of those impossible post-mortem situations. In your, in your despair, prayer. Right? That might be all you ever do. God might not move in your situation like he does here. But Jesus tells us in those situations in Luke 18, keep on praying. Never give up. But I'll say when God is on the move, it's not uncommon that the next step will be others join in on that prayer. Which means if you see someone crying out to, be God, crying out to God because of some seemingly hopeless situation, perhaps you should join in on their prayer. Certainly, if it's in your family or in your church, maybe just because it's someone you love, someone whom you're willing to do that with. And then, collectively, fix your eyes on the hope that you have in a God who's merciful and resolve to act, to take bold action to root out sin. Now, of course, that last step will only work if those who are committing the sin are involved in committing to repentance. But I, I want to emphasize, it does take a whole community to pull, pull it off. 
So back to our passage. Ezra's asked those around him to take an oath, and they do take the oath. But still, the story actually isn't resolved. How will this play out? Will the rest of Israel, who hadn't joined Ezra in weeping and prayer, go along with the plan? Or will they be like, hey, that's your thing, we don't want anything to do with that, and rise up and create some sort of revolt or some irreparable fissure? It might be reading too much between the lines, but I'm not sure Ezra's too sure that the solution's going to work. If you look at verse 6, what he does... He's still so so grieved deeply by Israel's sin. He can't eat or drink. Seems that's where his mind and his heart is. Crowds that have gathered around him and the speech of Shechaniah gave him enough hope to act, but yet he's so saddened by the sin that he's, I think, near the point of despair. So the rest of the leaders act. The elders and the officials issue a proclamation. All Israel is to gather, and if they refuse, they will be cut off from Israel. They'll lose their property and be cut off from being part of temple worship, the community there. Now this is a move that could backfire. As parents, we have tried moves like this before. Throw one more fit and we're going to leave the zoo. It's great when it works. But you have to be prepared that when they throw their next fit, you got to actually go home. And you know that'll actually create even more of a mess and more stress to deal with. No doubt the leaders have counted the cost. I get the sense they were fully prepared to follow through on this threat. Because they were serious about rooting out sin. Hardened, unrepentant sin will destroy God's people. It's not just true in the Old Testament. It's true for the church in the New Testament. And that's why the New Testament makes clear that the church must deal with this kind of hardened, clear, unrepentant sin. Matthew 18, Jesus lays out the steps. 1 Corinthians 5 gives an actual example of it working out. So we say when sin is, and we say three criteria, it's outward and measurable. So we're not just saying, I don't think your motives are right here, but it's something outward and measurable clearly a violation of the Bible and unrepentant of, then church leadership must step forward to deal with it. Doing everything they can so that the one in the wrong will repent. But if in the end they won't, the church must cut them off. Not because we don't love them, precisely because we do love them, we can't. We love their souls so much that we're not going to enable them making a shipwreck of their souls while we pretend like everything's okay. And we don't do it because we think we've got it all together. 
We say we're a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. It's not sin that's the problem. It's unrepentant sin. So the New Testament calls us to do all we can to bring someone to repentance, but if they will not repent, to separate from them. And that's precisely here in the Old Testament what the leaders are prepared to do. Now, can you imagine the breath holding between verses 8 and 9? We've laid down the law. How will the people respond? And if the leadership's holding their breath, when they wake up the morning of the third day, they hold it all the more. Because they wake up to a torrential downpour. If ever the people had an excuse not to assemble, it would have been this. Uh, We were planning on coming, but we got little kids, and you saw the weather out there, so we just couldn't make it. But what happened? By God's grace, he moves the people to assemble. Look at verse 9. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It's amazing. And look how the verse ends. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. I mean, this is a remarkable response. The sin is so serious to them that they they tremble. That means they get it. And the rain is so cold, they tremble. But they know they need to be there. And into the cold rain steps Ezra. What will he say? His message is actually very simple. You've sinned, confess to God, change your ways. Look at verses 10 and 11. You have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to Yahweh, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourself from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. It's appropriately short given the circumstances. But it's also the right formula whenever we find ourselves in sin. Confess it to God and then flee from it. Cut it off. Do whatever you can to wage war against it. And in this case, that means separating from the foreign wives. Now, you might wonder why this was the right solution. Why is God recommending the tearing apart of families or separation in this case? Well, to begin with, I want to point out that this does not happen in a vacuum. We're in this mess where there's no great way forward because the people had sinned in such blatant and terrible ways that God had told them not to do to begin with. So they're in a pickle. If they allow their wives to remain, we know how the story goes because we've already seen it played out. Israel becomes idolatrous, They are remaining in open rebellion against God, so they forsake his favor. Pretty soon, the whole work goes down the tube, and history will repeat itself. So that's not a great solution. But separation isn't either. 
God intends for husbands and wives to stay together. Let what not what God has separated, what God has separated, let not man tear apart. What God has joined together, let not man tear apart. I have a wedding coming up in January. I've got to get that right. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, it makes clear that a New Testament believer should remain married to an unbelieving spouse. But, but this situation is different than what's being dealt with in 1 Corinthians 7 because this isn't just personal sin. It's national sin. So they agreed that the best way forward was to separate from them. Now, when Shechaniah suggested this plan, he stipulated that it should be done according to God's law, that a group of people were going to think about how to do this best in accordance with God's law. Well, it's a broad statement. I certainly think it entails making sure that these women and children are properly cared for. We're not told in this passage what those provisions would be. But we can assume that if God was being obeyed, and you see His priorities in the Bible, this group was taken care of properly and in a just way. But the focus of the passage isn't on those details. The focus is of the passage is on entirely cutting off the sin from their midst. And it's clear that that approach, this cut-it-off-entirely approach to sin, is the right approach. Jesus said in Matthew 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And while we know he doesn't mean it literally, we also don't make the mis- we can't mistake what he's saying. Don't dither when it comes to putting off sin. Strong, deliberate, intentional action is needed. You struggle? with pornography? Get software that cuts off your access. Or, or if that doesn't work and you're still struggling, get rid of your computer. Get rid of your smartphone. You're struggling with spending money you don't have? Get rid of your credit card. You keep losing your temper again and again? Identify the root cause and develop a plan to address that aggressively and get your spouse or a few close friends to hold you accountable. I could give other examples. You get the point. That's how repentance is done. It's a cut it off, throw it out, separate from it approach. And that's what Ezra calls Israel to do. Confess to God and then get rid of the sin. His message is short, it's bold, it's clear. And so what will Israel do? How are they going to respond? They gathered as they should. Now they've heard the call. What are they going to do? They answer in verses 12 to 14. It is so. We must do as you say, they reply. That's beautiful, isn't it? And then they get practical. It's raining hard. On top of that, there's a pretty big mess. There's a lot of sorting out to do. Some of the cases might be complex, so let's get some official leaders in place 
And at scheduled times, the, the offending party and some of the leaders of their area will come and, and work through how to do this exactly right. They'll work through that together. And then they're going to keep doing that until at the end of verse 14 it says, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Everything's looking really good until verse 15. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Josiah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Mishalem and Shebatiah, the Levites, supported them. I mean, besides the weather, everything up to this point in the story is going real well. Until now. Now the plan is being opposed. Now the narrator gives us a hint that this isn't going to derail it, but for the people living in the story, they might have a feeling that finally the pent-up frustration of a powerful minority has a leader giving them voice and the geyser's going to burst and the too-good-to-be-true story ends here. But it doesn't. I love the simplicity of verse 16 after verse 15. Then the returned exiles did so. It's like Jonathan and Josiah can babble all they want. Let's not get bogged down with their dribble. Let's get on with a plan. And they do. They act. The unthinkable has happened. We can't miss how remarkable this is. Somehow the dire, hopeless situation has turned. God in his mercy has brought about a national repentance. as we marvel at this amazing turnaround. I don't want us to think that this passage is a promise that every deep-seated sin that leaves us wanting to perform a post-mortem can be turned around if we just follow these steps. But I do hope this passage reminds us of our God's character. Because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we know our God is gracious and merciful. When we repent, He relents. And He works through our prayers. He is merciful. He is loving. He hears us. So let's say there's a sin that is just gripping your life. Sin that you wish you could shake. What should you do? Begin with desperate, earnest prayer. See if you can get a few others to join in and get your eyes on the character of our God. And then confess to Him and with the help of others, take drastic steps to remove it. God is merciful, and there's reason to hope. Or let's say it's a deep-rooted sin in your family that's just made a wreck of your family. And let's say you've been a part of the problem. Begin to pray. 
pray in earnest, right? Despair and prayer. And from there, maybe God will move others in your family to join you in that prayer. Or maybe you can enlist, enlist a few from your church family to join you. But keep praying. Don't give up just because you haven't seen your desired results after a month or a year or a decade. Keep praying. And confess your own sin to God and with the help of others take drastic steps to change. Because of who God is, there's cause to hope. Or let's say the sins within the church And things are so bad, you wonder if you should just close up shop. The leaders need to grasp the gravity of the sin and let it, them, let it drive them to despairing prayer. Perhaps a few Shechaniahs need to step forward and assure the leaders, we're going to stand with you in this fight. And those Shechaniahs need to join in the prayer and then confess the sin. Corporately, even if like Ezra, you're not one of the ones who committed the sin, confess it with those who did. And resolve to take action, either to bring the one who's done the wrong to repentance or to practice church discipline to root out the sin from the church. Even now, there is hope because of who God is. This time of year, we love happy endings. You don't see a lot of successful Christmas movies that end on a depressing note. But when life is hard, and sin's got its tentacles all over it, the feel-good syrup of the season might not feel so good. It's a fairy tale. It's made up. Get real. The Bible's different. It deals honestly with sin and its effects. And not all the stories in the Bible have happy endings. Now, this one does because of the character of our God. And it gives us some good examples of how we should respond to sin. But more important, the grand story of the Bible is a happy one because God fixes a broken world. And all who have put their hope in Jesus eventually find their rest in Him. So the marvelous happy ending of Ezra is just a foretaste of the greater ending that awaits all who love Jesus. So before you order the post-mortem, turn your eyes to the great God. And in your despair, prayer. Would you join me? O oh, great God of highest heaven, occupy our lowly hearts, own it all, reign supreme. Conquer every 
rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists you. You've loved and purchased us. Make us yours forevermore. Amen.